And we are back to get actually to X-17 tonight. Uh, that was our mission last week. That did not happen. Uh, so hopefully we will be able to uh, get through X-17. Um, so we should start with prayer and then jump in. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. O Christ our God, illumine our hearts and minds uh, with your divine word open our minds to the teachings of your apostles, uh, open our hearts to their example. May we imitate them and may you guide us by your Holy Spirit in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 All right, Reed, will you read the first nine verses of chapter 17? Sure. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis rather, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and for three weeks he argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked fellows of the rabble, they gathered a crowd, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking, seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, crying, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard this. And when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So remember last uh, chapter, Paul and Silas uh, went over to Europe from Asia Minor, from the Asian continent over to the European continent. Uh, they landed in... Uh, area close to modern day city of Kavala in Greece, which is uh, not that far away from Thessaloniki. Uh, so it's no wonder that they go to Thessaloniki. Um, you know, if there, if we're, I'm just going to stop for a minute on Thessaloniki. Um, Thessaloniki is one of those cities for the Orthodox world um, that is very important. If you go to Greece, and you're thinking, oh, I, I want to spend all my time in Athens. Uh, don't do it. Um, Athens is very much a modern city. It was kind of a, uh, a little hovel or village before the modern state of Greece. Um, and then they decided, because all the other Western Europeans uh, really like ancient Greek history, they don't really care for the whole Middle Ages thing, you know, like Christianity. At the time, they uh, decided that they should make the capital in Athens. Um, th there's nice things in Athens. Uh, there's some museums and such, but Thessaloniki becomes the hub of uh, very much uh, the medieval Greek, uh, Constantinopolitan, uh, late Byzantine world. Uh, it's, it's the second largest city behind Athens in modern Greece. So, and there you're talking, you will see all the layers of history and church. Um, so uh, just a word to the wise, if you want to go to Greece and see Orthodox things, 
uh, you're probably best to go to Thessaloniki because from there, you're not far from the Holy Mountain. Uh, you're not far from a lot of uh, convents, monasteries, etc. Um, those are all throughout the, the modern country of Greece, but Thessaloniki is a very important uh, city in the history of the church. Um, so much so when I was uh, on at Crete at the Synod, which is you had bishops from all over the place except for a few uh, exceptions, of course. Um, a lot of the bishops who knew each other already is because of their time in theological studies in Thessaloniki. Uh, so it's just one of these places that you should go. Um, Paul, as it says here in verse 2, his custom, as we've encountered throughout the book of Acts, is, uh, well, he does have a custom of arguing, uh, but he also has a custom of starting that argument first uh, with his fellow Jews and going to the synagogue and telling them uh, and proving to them. Um, I think it's interesting here, and it echoes what we read uh, earlier in Acts, especially Acts 2, uh, and I believe also in the Sermon of Stephen, um, that the that the Christ Jesus it was necessary for him to suffer and rise from the dead. Uh, why do what do you think um, he would say that it was necessary? I'm thinking of at least two two reasons that why they would use necessity. Well, I might take it that one reason is simply he says the scripture said it, so it had to happen. Which is, of course, against the grain of how uh, Jews at the time would have understood their scripture. They would have been looking for a Messiah, but they've probably heard about this fellow, Jesus. Uh, to this day, there is a discrepancy, uh, disagreement between modern Judaism and Christianity about the interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, so, yes, one of the things I was thinking about was the necessity of scripture to fulfill scripture. This is a way that Christ even operates throughout the Gospels. There's another aspect to that of the, ne the necessity, which is, I think, Paul talks in this, uh, sorry, Peter in Acts 2. That from before the foundations of the universe or the world, before the creation of everything, this, this it was going to be necessary for Christ to suffer and to die. This was the path from the beginning. Um, of course, he wins uh, some followers, and they follow Paul and Silas. Um, again, they note, even if they're going to the synagogue of the Jews, uh, they note uh, that there's a great many devout Greeks, as we've been noticing in the past few chapters of Acts, uh, this turn towards the broader uh, Mediterranean world. And also a few leading women. We have met Lydia recently, last chapter. Mm -hmm. And what happens again? With the pattern is playing itself out again. Yeah. They get themselves in a pickle. Not everyone uh, is receptive to what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Are you are you referencing Sandlot? Uh no. I just Okay. There's the greatest pickle of our maybe. life. It's Sandlot. Anyway, sorry. I watched that a lot as a kid, talking about baseball earlier. Um so what's the pickle that they're in? Um 
the authorities have taken notice of them and they don't like that they're disturbing the peace. How did the authorities get a word about what was going on? It um, wasn't, was it Paul and Silas who were creating the uproar or is it somebody else? Um, it was uh, the Jews. Yeah. Um, verse five and six kind of. Yep. Uh, yeah. I love this phrase. The Jews uh, being jealous of what Paul and Silas getting leaders of uh, becoming leaders in their community and siphoning away people from the synagogue. They get some wicked fellows of the rabble. It sounds like a great band, wicked fellows of the rabble. Um, and sorry, my mind just went to contemporary things. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, they gathered a crowd. Uh, they set, they basically rioted. So, there was, um, that is what got the city authorities involved. Yeah, but I, 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 what I noticed was that the whole thing is just, uh, they go to the synagogue. Paul goes in. He argues from the scriptures. I mean, this happens every time. Yep. He explains and he proves Christ uh, you know, had to, to suffer. And he does this every time. Some of the Jews are persuaded and join Paul and Silas. And then devout Greeks do. <coughs> Not a few leading women. But, I mean, but then, then the Jews get jealous and, and then a crowd gathers and they get into trouble. And But, but it, the whole thing, step by step, is just like every time. Why, so why so why this pattern? Because I think there's something more to this pattern than possibly just this is what historically happened. I think there's a reason why Luke is outlining it like this. Well, you know, I've been <clears throat> listening to some podcasts about fable. <clears throat> fable? Fables. Fables. <clears throat> and how that pattern is so important in the ancient fables. <clears throat> It focuses on Russian fables mm -hmm. uh, and Eastern fables. Uh, it, it's uh, Nicholas Kotar. Yes, I know. <clears throat> but all I've gotten so far is the patterns are important. That it's important to re repeating a pattern is important. I guess I'm going to have to listen to an ep another episode to find out why <laughs> they are important. Wait the, on the, but the thing that strikes me, that, but I guess the thing that's striking me right now is I'm listening to stuff about <coughs> fables. And this is the way ancient stories apparently went, typically. That a pattern would repeat, and a pattern would repeat, and a pattern would repeat. What is, so what is the pattern that's repeating here? <clears throat> seems like the same pattern that our Lord <clears throat> went through. You know, he presented himself as the Christ. The Jews had a following. The Jews became jealous. They, uh, you know, had this big uproar and they accused him of uh, setting himself up against Caesar, calling himself a king. Yep. You have very much, and we've talked about this in the earlier, this is um, very much in the pattern of our Lord. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, the authorities getting involved. 
they, especially what Reed underlined, <clears throat> because it's changed, earlier um, problems was about claiming that Jesus is Lord to the Jews, and now it's um, that it's a false Messiah. <clears throat> They're messing with the temple. Now it is a, um, a movement that is seen as a threat to Rome. So it was first a threat to Jerusalem and the temple, and now it's a threat to the decrees of Caesar uh, in their declaration of Jesus as king. So here's my question. <clears throat> Are the Jews misunderstanding the message of Paul, or is Paul's message purposefully against the decrees of Caesar? Is this a political ploy? I mean, this is the same, this is very similar to the same threats or uh, accusations of Christ. Well, is my, is my question clear? Yes. I mean, and it seems to me there are sort of two different levels to answer it on. Mm -hmm. Um. And you see that as Pilate questions our Lord, says, you know, so are you a king? Well, my kingdom's not of this world. Oh, you are a king then. Oh, well, I'm getting the order wrong, but yeah, yeah. You know, that at, from one point of view, it's very plain that what our Lord was doing was not setting himself up in any sort of opposition to Caesar. And the same thing is happening here. And yet, on another level, um, this was what the Romans kept finding against the Christians and what the emperors did you know, later in this century. It's like, well, you, you won't offer sacrifice to the emperor. You're not patriotic. You know, you're disloyal. Um, you know, you're, you, you are claiming there's some other lord, some other king. And so at sort of a deeper level, this really was striking at the heart of kind of the worldly power of the empire, and the Romans recognized that and were not happy about it. Romans are okay with all sorts of other gods. Why not be okay with this one? I think it's not so much it's another god, it's the, it's the fact that it's only god. Or... Uh, that the, you know, the, it's the claims of a, Jesus, right? And it's not like a, a pantheistic understanding of God, and here's just another one, but that this is the Lord of Lords, uh, and that I think that's part of it. Uh, just kind of I. Uh, like that understanding sort of abolishes like all of the the Roman gods and. Uh, now kind of faced with like the idea of like now that they know that they're committing idolatry then gonna have to change well wasn't Yahweh the Lord of Lords say that again wasn't Yahweh Lord of Lords yeah was it was it the whole was it the whole tradition of Israel 
Romans told God, him. and when they got away from God, they were in trouble. And when they went with God, they weren't in trouble. I mean, that which, in, in other words, God was supposed supposed to be the leader. That goes back to Samuel and Saul, and 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 and. Uh, uh, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it just it just seemed, you know. It, uh, you know, they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. But it seems to me that a devout Jew at the same time might have been very well saying the same thing about Yahweh. Am I getting something wrong here? Well, I think I've heard that somehow the, the Romans found the, the Jews very troublesome, but had kind of reached a, a truce. They kind of gave them a yeah. special status that the Jews were not required to make the sacrifices to Caesar. And this is part of why it was so interesting then when the Jews were determined to say, no, these, these believers in Jesus are not part of us because that was depriving them of the shelter of that so that they could be pr prosecuted for not offering incense to the emperor. I, I think there's another thing that's a theme of the past few chapters that is also playing here. What, how are Paul and Silas turning the world upside down? We already had the kind of financial issue of the last chapter, right? What exactly is going on that's turning the world upside down here outside of the preaching of Jesus or what is entailed in the preaching of Jesus that they would be turning the world upside down? And I don't think it has to do with the, 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 the riots that the local Jews um, got going. I don't think that's... That's not what I think that's referring to. Well, I, I got to go back to what I was just saying for a minute. Because we have a Trinitarian God. And what's so upsetting about Jesus is he makes it very real. It's no longer an abstraction. It's a here on earth. It's the incarnation. Uh, I'm just I'm kind of thinking out loud when I say these things, but it, I I just got this feeling that's kind of what the problem was. Well, what, it, what so it, what's, it's one what, thing what's to let these on? Jews have their Yahweh, but now they've got an incarnated Yahweh who's like a human being, and, and it just that's really upsetting everything. I think that could be part of it. I think there's something very kind of practical going on here too. That has Isn't been the there... focus of the past few past few chapters as a debate within the church. Um, well, I mean, this is sort of tangent, but wasn't there like a disagreement between Pharisees and Sadducees about whether there was a resurrection of the body? Uh, so that that could also be a um, one aspect of kind of why it, this they are turning the world upside down. Um, I think part of it too is uh, like Jews and Greeks are joining together, but they don't quite know how to like coexist. I think one of the, the practical things that's going on here, the world's turning upside down because the Greeks are now joining in with this Jewish belief under this new King Jesus. So it sounds before the stalemate or what Reed was talking about with Rome and Judaism was basically kind of like, Oh, the Jews are just kind of weird and they're going to do their weird stuff.
But now that we've got Jews getting, and the, yes, there are already God-fearers before, but now the explicit message that we've seen with Paul's preaching is, you know, to fulfill the scriptures of Judaism uh, of the Old Testament uh, is the Messiah. And of an outgrowth of that is now this is a message to the entire world that everyone must follow Jesus Christ. That is crossing boundaries that Judaism did not cross before. Yeah. So I think part of what's going on here is the practical reality of, uh, and I've heard this before, Paul is one of the first universalists. Uh, and I don't mean universalist in the sense of like everyone's going to heaven universalism. Uh, it is more of a, like before religion was very, uh, there's a word that they've come up with, henotheistic, or, uh, that basically everyone has tribal gods and Rome can handle tribal gods. As long as you throw that incense for the emperor and honor you know, show honor, Christianity is now saying, oh, no, 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 <laughs> From the backwaters of Israel, from Palestine, comes the Lord of the universe, and everyone must bow before him. That's going to register on a few um, levels beyond uh, a spiritualized Jesus where he doesn't have uh, necessarily a command of what the world is supposed to be. Um, like uh, he's obviously not a political political messiah, but his kingdom obviously affects uh, the way that the world is to run. And I know, Reed, you weren't saying that it's just a spiritualized Jesus, but I, I think the real practical thing that's going on here is what the church and its decision uh, seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to the early church uh, to have completely affirm what God had already been doing in bringing the Gentiles in. And that has political ramifications. That causes some some upset. So let's keep going so we can get through this chapter because I want to get to Athens. Okay, so this the the thing that's turning the world upside down is back when you you you've you've moved ahead, but that's okay. Is back when it, it is this the the part of the process where part of the part of the pattern where they go to the synagogue. And when they go to the synagogue, they convert some Jews, but they also convert other people that are not Jewish. Right. And start preaching this is the only God. Am I getting it right? That's what I think. That basically this is the king of the universe and everyone should bow, before, you know, bow their knee to him. I mean, right. That is and Paul's that theology. And that upsets the cultural framework of the time where every individual tribe or group or whatever had its own God. And you got your God, you know, there's Moab and, you know, wherever they've all got their own gods and that's fine. And this is, this is messing that up. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And I think even if they were mishearing about their preaching about this King Jesus, mm -hmm. I still think the, the practical reality of what, and it's what happens Christianity destroys the paganism because it can't stand. And so that like, and the whole way of leading um, Rome, et cetera, has to be shaped around this new King Jesus. Uh, and Caesar at that time was in many ways, they, Caesar was worshiped as a God. 
so there's kind of empire worship going on too. So let's go, let's do the next five verses. Reed, do you mind doing the next five verses as well? Happy to. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, stirring up and inciting the crowds. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So if we've been tempted to think that Luke uh, has it in for the Jews at the time, uh, obviously there is a variety of reactions to the preaching of Paul and Silas. The Jews in Berea, um, David, I don't know, you grew up in the Restoration Movement. Uh, Phil, you did too. Uh, this is a favorite verse from when I grew up in the Church of Christ, that the nobler ones were the ones who examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Um, I, I do think that there is something noble about the Bereans and the fact that they were open-minded and that they actually examined scripture would that we all ex examine scripture daily. Um, what do you all make of, uh, we have another mention. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking for my cat. Philip's got him. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Ellie. <laughs> so the, uh, there's a mention of verse 12, again, of women of high standing converting. Why these mention? Why, why is this being mentioned? Because we before we've heard of households, but it seems that there's a particular reason for this. Can you all? I don't have it. I honestly do not have anything in mind in this moment in asking this. I'm just noting that it's happened again, and we just a few verses ago heard the same thing, and we encountered Lydia not too long ago. Well, it reminds me a little bit of where in the Gospels it talks about how um, there were a number of women of means who were supporting our Lord and his disciples as he went around preaching the Gospel. And I wonder if somehow, in fact, these women were playing a huge role in supporting the church there and in introducing Christianity into the noble households where the men maybe didn't feel the same freedom to go and attend synagogue services. Yes. This is, uh, I think, echo of gospel. Uh, it's a reality. And I think it's also, you see in the early church, uh, women of means who their households became, become for better for us, hot spots for Christianity. And so you see this in Pauline uh, epistles mentioning of uh, certain women in the household, the household, the churches that are gathered in their households. Um, 
I also think it, uh, it's part of the world turning upside down, uh, that it's, it's men and women who are being attracted to this. Um, their uh, Greco-Roman religion is varied and interesting, and it's hard to say what, you know a few things that captures it because there's so much variety. Um, but I would say that the difference between man and woman in the, that context uh, was heightened. So for a religion to appeal as much to men and women and for them there to be a basic uh, equality within the church, by that receiving the sacraments, doing all those things, that was pretty, um, pretty new. Is it part you know, of the universalism you mentioned earlier? Do what? Is it part of the universalism you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I think so. Um, that doesn't mean, I think Paul, when you read his epistles, that doesn't mean that he uh, necessarily, uh, he doesn't, that does not blow up his understanding of what, roles of women and men within marriages and families, etc. But the reality of their equality before God, access to the sacraments, all those kind of things, that's quite different than like the mystery cults, uh, other places um, where you definitely had some divisions. And if you were a woman, you probably were dedicated to a particular goddess or God uh, that men were not necessarily into, or you served as the uh, temple prostitute or you, it was an entire group of women who were uh, dedicated to this particular God. But I think that, I think the universalism of the message of the gospel uh, is being underlined in mentioning these women. So Paul gets himself kicked out again, and he goes to Athens. Silas and Timothy are going to have to catch up with him. Any other comments about those five verses? It breaks the pattern. Of people leaving Paul because he's cantankerous. No, the the pattern of they come into the community, they go to the synagogue, they convince some of the Jews. I mean, a lot of it's there. Some of it's there, you know, and then uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, God fearers also become convinced. But then, what usually happens is the local Jews become jealous. The local Jews involve the local authorities. The local Jews cause a riot. And then they have to leave. That latter right. part is left out. There's a break right. in the pattern there. Right. It had to be from Thessaloniki. Yeah. Now we're going to see a further break in the pattern. Who would like to read? Uh, let's do. Uh, my issue is I'm trying to figure out how to get this. With uh, I'll, I can scroll because I would like to get 16 through 31. Who would like to read? I can. All right, please. Uh, to 31, you said? Yeah, so I'll, I'll scroll it down when we get there. Okay. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who chanced to be there. Some also of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers met him. And some said, what would this babbler say? Others said, 
He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you present for you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. And he made from one every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, a representation by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Well, so there's a reason why I wanted us to go ahead and get here. Um, this is definitely a very different uh, world that Paul has stepped into. He goes to the synagogue, but he's realized in Athens, for whatever reason, Athens, probably because it's Athens, uh, it's a city full of idols. So, yeah, he goes to the synagogue where the Jews are, but he also goes in the marketplace every day with those who were there. And... I, especially when I was a kid, I had no idea what Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are, but now I'm amazed to see them in the New Testament. I mean, obviously, uh, but that they're specific about Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they, um, I'm not surprised that Epicurean and Stoic philosophers um, who are not necessarily into the gods this is one of the things about Greek philosophy. It depends on what different schools of philosophy, uh, what their relationship to the ancient Greek gods are. Um, so uh, these are uh, Stoic philosophers. Well, does anyone know what Stoic, where that comes from? Anybody? Bueller. 
Bueller. So the Stoa was the place where Aristotle taught. It's where they would walk around. Uh, so Stoics were folks who would, they would go to the Stoa, the place where they would teach uh, and, and learn from each other. Um, and Epicureans, um, it's a little bit more complicated than saying that they kind of uh, Epicurean, that they were just kind of the, um, that they're just kind of hedonists. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but uh, Stoics, uh, if you're probably to underline what Stoics, uh, they're very much about conforming yourself to the way the world is, the cosmos, for uh, the sake of, I wouldn't say serenity, but peacefulness and wisdom is to align yourself with the world, uh, the cosmos as it's structured and knowing and understanding what the world is. Um, so they would, of course, uh, encounter Paul and think he's a babbler and somebody's just talking about foreign gods. So um, I think that this is a slight to them because they're, they would see themselves typically above just, I'm sure they've heard of a lot of random gods from the far reaches of the empire. Um, but they still wanted to know what he had to say, because as it says in verse 20, uh, they want to hear about strange things because, uh, verse 21, this is like, uh, the university cafes of today. Uh, they spend all of their time there telling and hearing something new. Uh, doesn't mean they're really doing much of anything else, but the coffee's good. So um, are there any questions or uh, observations about this early interaction and Paul's uh, pro being provoked by the city full of idols? Paul's having a very Jewish reaction here, too. Um, when he gets up, um, it's deep within the mind of the prophets of Israel to go against idolatry. So, of course, Paul, um, of course, in preaching Jesus, but to be against idols and idolatry, that is a very Jewish thing. Um, but he, what I find fascinating about Paul and this may be a little out of character, but I don't think necessarily. Uh, he doesn't just go for the jugular here uh, at the beginning. He, he gives them a compliment. You know, I perceive you're, you're very religious. You're so religious, in fact, um, that you want to cover all your bases and you've got an altar inscribed. So he sees an, an in here, a, 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 an opening <laughs> I, I can do something with this. You've got an altar to the unknown God. Guess what? I can tell you about this unknown God. And then we get a very typical um, Jewish, uh, of course, uh, teaching uh, God who made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, he does not live in shrines made by man. This is also similar to Stephen's discourse. Remember when Stephen was preaching and he's, he's kind of subverting the temple you have Paul, and Paul's message is God who's made the world and everything in it. Uh, he's not constrained by your shrines. He's above and beyond that. Again, I think this underlines the theme we've been building in this chapter of uh, universalism. This is a God. He is the God who made everything. Um, and he doesn't need, uh, I think there's 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. 
um, there's nothing in God that requires uh, like the service of humans because he supports and undergirds all of reality. He also, again, this is the universalism theme. He's made from one every nation of men to live on the face of the whole earth. So this is not a God of the Jews. This is the God of everybody. Uh, and he's preordained periods and boundaries for these peoples, even though they might be separated by periods and boundaries. Um, they're still all men. They're all of the same humanity. Uh, and that in making them all, that there is a desire for God that's implanted within them, that they would build an altar to the unknown God uh, and the hope that they would feel after him and find him. And yet I, I love... Uh, this is probably where Augustine is also. Uh, I love quoting Augustine where God is closer to you than to yourself, uh, where Paul says he's not far from each one of us. And he continues by uh, not quoting scripture, but um, quoting a poet. So, and he continues after quoting a poet, as he's trying to make as many connections to these people as possible. Um, he then does a traditional uh, Jewish um, critique of idolatry. Isaiah, Jeremiah, God is not like gold, silver, stone, and you can't represent them like, uh, you know, all these other gods. Before I get to the very end of this, are there any uh, observations, questions? Um, from my very limited understanding, I would think this would appeal, what Paul was saying would appeal much more to a Stoic than to an Epicurean. Because as I recall, the Epicureans were quite materialistic and the Stoics were more spiritual uh, in, in the sense of pursuing virtue and so on and so forth. And, and, and uh, I think the Epicureans would say that they're virtuous in their own way. Um, but I do think that you're right that the Stoics would be more open to uh, discourses about virtue and aligning yourself with the, the way things are. I mean, the Epicureans would do the same thing just in a very different way. Yeah. They're seeking the same thing. They just, their path, the way they think they're going to get to there is very different. Yeah. If you want to read up on this, I can give links to books, etc. It's been a while since I've had to delve into the, to the ancients, but I have some favorite books that I could suggest. Well, like I said, I, I was just running off from what I can recall from, yeah. it's from probably <laughs> 50 years ago. Exactly. Right. <laughs> but it does really strike me that you see here Paul practicing what he says elsewhere about to, you know, to the Jews, he was a Jew, to the Greeks, he was a Greek. Right. Like, he says nothing about the scriptures there. He doesn't even mention the name of Jesus or the title of the Christ. Um, he makes it a very winsome presentation. Um, mm -hmm. An awful lot of which is to begin to draw their minds away from the idea of idols being a proper way of worshiping God. Right. That there's one God behind everything. This is a very Jewish message. Until the very end. 
Well, and it strikes me too that, um, you know, I think David Bentley Hart talks about this, that all of the gods of the pagans were beings. They were part of the yep. world and were to some extent bound by it. You know, the, the Greeks and the Romans thought of the three fates who, you know, even ruled over the gods or whatever. And it appears that Paul's trying to make that distinction that this God, the real God is not part of this world. He lies out, so he's transcendent to use our term. Um, and so in fact, he's the one who made everything in it. Yeah. And I think too of, um, you know, we have missionary friends who say that it's very common in various cultures um, and probably thinking especially of tribal cultures that within their myths and, you know, their, their understanding of the world, there are these threads that resemble the gospel stories and the stories of Christ. And the missionaries try to pick up on these as they try to tell the story of Christ. And it seems as though Paul is doing something similar here, drawing on the poets, drawing on what the, the Greeks were familiar with that was consistent with what we know of the Lord. Yeah, I, I think it's very good evangelism. Yeah. So in many ways, he sounds, he could be a Jewish prophet amongst them who knows Greco-Roman poets, etc., and knows how to talk to them. I think until the end, hmm. where there's a turn at the end. So far, we're kind of in the traditional transcendent God, a critique of idolatry. He's created all humanity that they might search for him. And then the verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. So what's changed? Why now? So in the past, he was able to kind of look over the ignorance because uh, it wasn't clear. This is obvious that he's, this is very different than what the message to the Jews was, right? Yeah. <laughs> the message of the, <laughs> the way that you preach to the Jews is the prophets have done told y'all over and over again, and here it is again, and y'all done messed up. This is, uh, there's a kind, there's an acceptance of, you couldn't have known what was going on in the womb of Israel, what God was preparing with his chosen people. Uh, but now that's over. And why is that? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. So I think there's a lot of fascinating points in this turn of the way. I think the way that a lot of us today, if we were to go out and try to do some of that tribal, uh, you would say, then God entered the world as a man. It's not what Paul does. Paul goes to the judgment. Paul goes to that God has appointed a man uh, who has, he will judge the world by this man. And because he's risen uh, him from the dead, uh, this is what's going to happen. Hmm. That's a very different way than I think many of us would think to present the gospel to those who are unfamiliar with the Jewish scriptures. Am I wrongheaded in that? Do you think, I, I think that's not the way that I, that typically the gospel would be presented today, especially. 
Well, I think it's why, why this focus. I was going to say, I think it's striking that he says nothing. I mean, he never even mentions the name of Jesus. Yep. And he describes him only as a man whom God has sent. So there's nothing about his being God as well. There's no appeals to Isaiah or the Psalter here. <laughs> it's just a bald claim. I think it's fascinating that he does kind of an eschatological uh, judgment day move at the end. But I think that's also, it makes sense if you are not, he kind of has to choose what he's going to say. He has their attention for so long and he's got to be careful. They've heard about Judaism before. So if he starts going off about Judaism or Hebrew law, Moses, that kind of stuff, he's probably going to lose their attention. But what he gets at is something that is also, I think, new for Judaism. There's an understanding of some kind of mediation uh, and that there's maybe glimmerings of kind of like in time or judgment that's there. Um, but what you have confirmed in Jesus Christ, if he is the son of God, if he is the mediator, uh, then he is also uh, the one who has been appointed to be the judge because he is the rule of perfection that entered into the world. Um, and so there's going to be a judgment day at the end. And this is part of the early kerygma or the teaching, preaching of the apostles, uh, that there is an end and there'll be judgment and it'll be judgment based upon Jesus Christ. And this, isn't this a very typical, typical way of preaching now? Well, I'm not going to say in 2020, but it has been, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's kind of, uh, it, I don't know, it's almost an archetype, you know, the end of the end is near, sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know, judgment day is coming, it could, you know, judgment day could come on your way home, you better repent now and accept Jesus or you'll go to hell, you know, uh, before you wake up tomorrow morning, it, it just... Yeah, you're right about that. I think there's an awful there's an awful lot of evangelical preaching that is based on this model. I guess is what I'm saying. Which is interesting because this is the, a lot of the evangelical preaching is done to a bunch of people who already know a lot of the basics that they're going to say. Yeah, I know. This but is they, to like people who don't know anything. Over. That's the drama of the tent. Of the tent? Is that what you said? Yeah. Of the revival, revival. tent. Yeah. That's the drama of the revival tent. You go no, you go there because you've heard it's a really great preacher, which means he's gonna scare the hell out of you. <laughs> and then he's and, and 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 you're gonna be terrified, and then he's gonna relieve you, and then there'll be a lot of tears and joy. Let's, There's let's, fried chicken at some point too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, what is the response to Paul's sermon? Can we call this a sermon? I think it's a sermon. It's yeah. a fascinating I, sermon. I mean, I would probably do it more of an elevator pitch, kind of like what you were saying. Um, you you have to like have the condensed, you have to know your audience, so to speak, just to be able to say enough to 
pique their attention. Uh, and yeah, uh, I, mean, I think he avoided topics that they would uh, just like roll their eyes and walk away from, but then also introduced new ways of understanding that based on where they came from that I think uh, did that effectively. Yeah, but it's exactly the end point that they, when in verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked him. Some said, ah, man, we'll hear you again. So Paul went out from among them, but some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, no mention of Jews. No. Probably because the Jews aren't hanging out on their opagus, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's another bit, it's a big break in the pattern. Yes. I mean, it's, this is a huge break in the pattern. He's not going to the synagogue and convincing people on the basis of the text. He, he's not, you know, he doesn't, have, he doesn't have some Jews that believe him and, 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 you know, start down the road of converting to Christianity. This is all nothing but uh, the, uh, uh, I can't think of the term. Come on, Gentiles? it's really simple. Huh? The Gentiles, Gentiles? all nothing but Gentiles. Thank you. This is all nothing but Gentiles. Yeah. So did Paul fail? No. Was, it, was this successful or was this a failure? It was successful as much as anything else. A few went with him. <laughs> Every one of these, a few went with him. It's not like right. he, you know. Not except Billy for Berea. Berea seems to be an exception. It seems like a lot more went with him at Berea. Reed, what were you saying before I cut you off? I was just going to say, it seemed like we've seen something similar to this, though, in Philippi, where there were not enough Jews even to form a synagogue. And so we see Paul preaching in the marketplace. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's where the, the incident with the slave girl who has the, the spirit. And uh, so, I don't know, I think I see it more as just Paul is adapting to what he finds in each city. Yep. That it'll take different w approaches and different ways to be able to reach people, which is a truth to this day for mission in preaching and teaching. Different people need to hear different things and present it in different ways for them to, for it to fall together for them to understand it. Or they're just not ready for it and they have to hear them again another time and then they might be able to. I'm thinking of the uh, parable where uh, the landowner goes out and sows seed and some falls on rocks, some in the thorns, some on good soil. Uh, mm -hmm. The word is being spread. Uh, seeds are hopefully being planted, but um, you know, not everyone is ready to hear it, or at least not at that time. Dionysius is. Mm -hmm. and, it's and it's approaching everybody where they are. Makes me think of... Uh, Orthodox, uh, Orthodox missionaries. Yes, who we commemorated today. Yeah, their, arrive, their arrival in Alaska. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
exactly. Who, who, uh, uh, well, frankly, contrary to Catholic missionaries in, 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 in uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the continental United States. Right. Imposing European culture upon Native Americans and Orthodox missionaries just adapting Native American culture and approaching them on their on their own terms with a much more peaceful result yes the monks were but not the russian um government and trade groups because the monks yeah, i was talking yeah i was talking the about the monks are, i wasn't talking yeah, about the trade the monks group. are in conflict with them <laughs> no, no. well once you get capitalists involved and i'm sorry i shouldn't have said that <laughs> it's all about the furs uh-huh so well, I, I think we should probably call it uh, a night there since we've actually finished that chapter. Um, Chelsea and I were married on the feast day of Dionysius there, Apagai. He has an illustrious history or pseudonymity within the church. Uh, I'm sure all of you have read uh, the works of Dionysius there, Apagai, correct? Sure. Yes. Philip, please regale us with uh, the mystical theology of Dionysius. Well, he is well, worth reading slowly. Oh. I'm... Oh, yeah, there you go. There we go. No, I'm, I'm still uh, back with the uh, wicked fellows of the rabble. Um... <laughs> You're the bass player, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is Dionysius. This is where the pseudonym for the author of the later works uh, comes from. You will find people who will um, defend and say that the works of Dionysius the Areopagite uh, go back to this convert uh, at the Areopagus. I, I don't know what to say besides no, that can't really be possible. It'd be nice. Uh, the ways that we think about pseudonymity uh, or using pen names today is like we should be in a murder mystery or something, but that's not the way the ancient world thought about that. They were using the authority of the figure. Um, and it's very obvious because Dionysius, the Areopagite, um, sorry for anybody out there on recording land who is very dead set on this, but he direct has direct quotes from, uh, since we're talking about Epicureans and Stoics in this chapter, he has uh, lifts bl huge block quotes from Proclus, a later Neoplatonist is the phrase, the title they'll use for Proclus, but Proclus didn't live and write until third, fourth century. So there's no way that Dionysius uh, and his works are apostolic writings. And our archbishop is a great expert on him, right? Correct. So if you want to read about Dionysius, probably, honestly, the best way is to his book on Dionysius. Um, I'm not telling you that it's easy, but that is probably the easiest way to approach Dionysius. Because a lot of the other ways, I did a seminar with Vodika on Dionysius. So a lot of the other approaches to Dionysius are, uh, are going to throw you into the backwaters of Neoplatonism or they, they approach Dionysius very much as a philosopher uh, and our bishop approaches Dionysius 
through the vision of um, the broader Eastern Fathers. So he, in very many ways, thinks that he sounds like and operates like the Cappadocian Fathers, Basil and Gregory. Um, and uh, also Second Temple Jewish literature that we've mentioned here and there in our book study so far of Acts. Um, and the visionary uh, and liturgical realities of the church. Um, so it's, it's, if anybody, I have a copy of the book, but if you borrow it and don't bring it back, I will find you. So I highly suggest if you have a few months of time or years of time, then you should do it. But I can't go over the name Dionysius their Apogite and not say something. So I, I feel an affinity to him for being married on uh, his feast day, but also because of studying him. Uh, he's a very important father of the church, uh, whether or not he was first century or fourth century, because the later tradition picks him up and he is used extensively. There's another reason why we know that he's not first century, because nobody quotes him until after the, that time after like fourth fifth century anyways there's your wikipedia article on dionysius their apogite uh thank you uh does anyone have anything else to say about acts we'll go to acts 18 next week okay thank you all thank you father daniel